Hey, I'm James. Welcome to a safish space to listen to some scary stories. From true crime to urban legends and whatever comes between, let's take this time to dive into something dark and see what twists and turns these stories have for us. I would like to welcome you to the I Know What You Did Last podcast. After you. Welcome back to the I Know What You Did Last podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed the premiere episodes. The messages and the reposts, they've all been so appreciated, and I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who's been so kind about the podcast. I know I promised double features every other Sunday, but you didn't think that that meant nothing on the Sundays in between, did you? <laughs> Tonight's episode is going to be a true crime case that took place in Chicago back in the 80s. Let's take a few minutes to sit back and hear what happened. Twelve-year-old Mary Kellerman would wake up feeling sick on September 29, 1982. Mary lived in Chicago with her parents, and she was a seventh grader. She told her parents that she wasn't feeling too good, and they decided to keep her home from school. Mary would spend her morning resting and taking meds to fight off the cold. But a short while later, Mary would walk into the bathroom, and her father Dennis would hear a loud thud, he would open the door, and he would find Mary convulsing on the floor. Mary would be pronounced dead at the hospital. Nothing unusual appeared in Mary's exams, and the doctors and examiners decided to check in with the parents to investigate further, but no clues or leads were found. On this same day, 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner would be discharged from the hospital after having her fourth child. Mary Lynn lived in a different area of Chicago, and just a short while after returning home, her husband Ed would find her convulsing on the floor and she was rushed to the hospital. She would be pronounced dead the next day. A third Mary, Mary McFarland, also living in Chicago, would drop to the ground and start convulsing in front of her co-workers before she was rushed to the hospital and also pronounced dead. Paula Prince, a 35-year-old flight attendant, would also lose her life. Unfortunately, she was alone when she died and her body wouldn't be found until days later. And again, still on September 29th, Adam Janus, who was a 27-year-old also living in Chicago, took the day off of work and picked his kids up from school. He did some groceries, he cooked dinner for the kids. Afterwards, he mentions to his wife, Teresa, that he is not feeling well. A few minutes later, Teresa would find him convulsing on the floor. He was rushed to the hospital and would unfortunately be pronounced dead. They ruled his death a cardiac arrest, leaving the family extremely upset to return home and grieve. His brother, his sister-in-law, his parents and wife all went back to the house. They were exhausted and they were in shock, and his younger brother, Stanley, and his wife, who was coincidentally also named Teresa, both had headaches coming on and were just overall not feeling too well. Within minutes, Stanley passes out. The family starts to freak out. They had just gotten home from losing Adam to these same symptoms. They call 911, the paramedics arrive, and they begin to work on Stanley. Almost immediately after they arrive and begin rescue efforts, Teresa also collapses. They are both rushed to the hospital where unfortunately, Stanley, Adam's younger brother, would also be pronounced dead, and Teresa would be put on life support before dying two days later. 
While investigations began on whether there was some kind of gas leak or something in common with Adam, Stanley, and Teresa that could have caused the deaths, an off-duty firefighter in Chicago named Philip would hear the Janus family calls over his police scanner. Coincidentally, Philip's mother-in-law worked with Mary Kellerman's mom and had heard about Mary dying earlier that same day. Mary had been taken to a different hospital, which is why the hospitals hadn't linked the connection and similarities in the deaths yet. With no signs of a gas leak and Philip's realization, they began to wonder if this was a case of poisoning. They had asked the Kellermans and the Janus family for anything they ingested that day, and both families had one thing that was ingested in both households. Tylenol. At first look, the bottle of Tylenols from each household appeared totally normal and were stored as evidence. The chief medical examiner notes that the way the victims died does correlate to cyanide poisoning and decided to test the bottles by smell. Cyanide has an almond smell, and sure enough, both bottles had an almond scent in them. Results would come back that indeed the pills had cyanide in them, and toxicology reports would be ran on Mary, Adam, Stanley, and Teresa. They all had 100 to 1,000 times the lethal limit in their blood. When these results came back and the hospitals had started receiving this information, it was confirmed that in each of these deaths, Tylenol had been taken. By September 30th, the news had traveled fast that several people had died from taking Tylenol. They were able to link Mary Kellerman, Adam, Teresa, and Stanley's death to the Tylenol, but the other cases wouldn't be confirmed until later. By 9.30 a.m., most stores in Chicago had completely removed Tylenol from the shelves, while some only removed the lot number that was referenced in the press conference. Tylenol issued a recall on that specific lot number, however, on October 1st, it was discovered that Mary Lynn Reiner's bottle was from a different lot number than Mary Kellerman's and the Janus family. The recall was expanded to include that lot number as well. Surprisingly, however, Paula Prince's was from an entirely different lot number than the rest, and the press conference was held again, where the public was advised not to ingest any kind of Tylenol in any form, regardless of lot numbers. With a total of 10 million bottles tested, 50 pills were laced with cyanide and found in eight of those bottles. Five of those bottles were in the homes of the deceased, two of the bottles had been sent back, and one had not been sold. Johnson & Johnson, the creator and distributors of Tylenol, would then post a $100,000 reward for anyone with information and established a 1-800 number for anyone to call in with information. The recall proved to be effective as there hadn't been any other Tylenol deaths reported. Police were looking into the employees of Johnson & Johnson, but through this, they were actually able to rule out that the lacing and poisoning did not occur within the production facilities and that someone instead had fetched these bottles from different stores, poisoned them, and then returned them to the shelves. The police, unfortunately, would have no other evidence that could help them discover who would or could do this. On October 6th, Johnson & Johnson would receive an extortion letter asking for $1 million, or else the killings would happen again. In this letter, the sender had left an account number for where they wanted the million deposited. FBI investigated further and found that the man who sent the letter and identified him as James Lewis. A nationwide manhunt began and he was found in December. 
Further investigation did reveal that James was not the poisoner. James wrote this extortion letter and left the account number of a man that he had personal grievances with, hoping that it pinned the killings on him and that the FBI would go after him. There would be a few other suspects that the police would investigate. Roger Arnold being one, a pub goer, who was overheard making comments about being responsible for the killings. Police would investigate further and no evidence that could solidify his connection was found and he was cleared. Unfortunately, no suspicions or leads would get anywhere because to this day, no one has been found responsible for the deaths of these seven people. That's going to be what happened last in the 1982 Tylenol murders. It's an awful case with a lot of coincidence, three different victims named Mary, two Teresas involved, Philip's connection to Mary Kellerman and the police scanner, three victims all living in the same house, and it all happening in one day in different areas of Chicago. Along with all of those coincidences, if you're familiar with the Unabomber, there was also coincidental connections between himself in this case that had led police to suspect him. But nothing was ever found, and he denied all involvement. I remember in 2009, it was announced that with technology changes and advancements, they were going to re-examine this case and take another look at it. But still to this day, nothing more has been made public. This attack changed for the better how Tylenol and a lot of products were packaged for consumer safety. The families of the victims did sue Johnson & Johnson though, because they felt that that should have already been in place. That type of packaging should have been in place before the product was out. Uh, they did not end up going to court though. Johnson & Johnson did settle privately with those families. I myself have never been a big fan of taking pills, but I know when I first heard about this case years ago, that didn't help. <laughs> I hope that any re-examinations of evidence can get the families and everyone some answers as to who, why, what happened in this case. Thanks for listening to this true crime case. For full details, I'll have a link in the description for resources, and I'll catch you guys next week for the double feature. Be good, stay spooky, and I trust you can see yourself out, right? Thanks for listening, and until next time...